Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, Modern Theology and Biblical Criticism, Part 3. My picture of one layman's reaction, and I think it is not a rare one, would be incomplete without some account of the hopes he secretly cherishes and the naive reflections with which he sometimes keeps his spirits up. You must face the fact he does not expect the present school of theological thought to be everlasting. He thinks, perhaps wishfully thinks, that the whole thing may blow over. I have learned in other fields of study how transitory the, quote, assured results of modern scholarship may be, how soon scholarship ceases to be modern, the confident treatment to which the New Testament is subjected is no longer applied to profane texts. There used to be English scholars who were prepared to cut up Henry VI between half a dozen authors and assign his share to each. We don't do that now. When I was a boy, one would have been laughed at for supposing there had been a real Homer. The disintegrators seem to have triumphed forever, but Homer seems to be creeping back. Even the belief of the ancient Greeks that the Mycenaeans were their ancestors and spoke Greek, has been surprisingly supported. We may without disgrace believe in a historical Arthur. Everywhere, except in theology, there has been a vigorous growth of skepticism about skepticism itself. We can't keep ourselves from murmuring. Multa renascentor quayam cicadere. This is the first half of a quotation from Horace, Many words now in disuse will revive, and many now in vogue will be forgotten. Nor can a man of my age ever forget how suddenly and completely the idealist philosophy of his youth fell. MacTaggart, Green, Bosanquet, Bradley seemed enthroned forever. They went down as suddenly as the Bastille. And the interesting thing is that while I lived under that dynasty, I felt various difficulties and objections which I never dared to express. They were so frightfully obvious that I felt sure they must be mere misunderstandings. The great men could not have made such very elementary mistakes as those which my objections implied. But very similar objections, though put, no doubt, far more cogently than I could have put them, were among the criticisms which finally prevailed. They would now be the stock answers to English Hegelianism, if anyone present tonight has felt the same shy and tentative doubts about the great biblical critics, perhaps he need not feel quite certain that they are only his stupidity. They may have a future he little dreams of. We derive a little comfort, too, from our mathematical colleagues. When a critic reconstructs the genesis of a text, he usually has to use what may be called linked hypotheses. Thus, Boltman says that Peter's confession is, quote, an Easter story projected backward into Jesus' lifetime. The first hypothesis is that Peter made no such confession. Then, granting that, there is a second hypothesis as to how the false story of his having done so might have grown up. Now, let us suppose, what I am far from granting, that the first hypothesis has a probability of 90%. Let us assume that the second hypothesis also has a probability of 90%. But the two together don't still have 90%, for the second comes in only on the assumption of the first. You have not A plus B. 
you have a complex AB. And the mathematicians tell me that AB has only an 81% probability. I'm not good enough at arithmetic to work it out, but you see that if, in a complex reconstruction, you go on thus superinducing hypothesis on hypothesis, you will in the end get a complex in which, though each hypothesis by itself has in a sense a high probability, the whole has almost none. You must not, however, paint the picture too black. We are not fundamentalists. We think that different elements in this sort of theology have different degrees of strength. The nearer it sticks to mere textual criticism of the old sort, Lachman's sort, the more we are disposed to believe in it. And of course, we agree that passages almost verbally identical could not be independent. It is as we glide away from this into reconstructions of a subtler and more ambitious kind that our faith in the method wavers and our faith in Christianity is proportionately corroborated. The sort of statement that arouses our deepest skepticism is the statement that something in a gospel cannot be historical because it shows a theology or an ecclesiology too developed for so early a date. For this implies that we know, first of all, that there was any development in the matter, and secondly, how quickly it proceeded. It even implies an extraordinary homogeneity and continuity of development, implicitly denies that anyone could greatly have anticipated anyone else. This seems to involve knowing about a number of long-dead people, for the early Christians were, after all, people, things of which I believe few of us could have given an accurate account if we had lived among them. All the forward and backward surge of discussion, preaching, an individual religious experience. I could not speak with similar confidence about the circle I have chiefly lived in myself. I could not describe the history, even of my own thought, as confidently as these men described the history of the early church's mind. And I am perfectly certain no one else could. Suppose a future scholar knew that I abandoned Christianity in my teens, and that, also in my teens, I went to an atheist tutor. Would not this seem far better evidence than most of what we have about the development of Christian theology in the first two centuries? Would he not conclude that my apostasy was due to the tutor, and then reject as backward projection any story which represented me as an atheist before I went to that tutor? Yet he would be wrong. I am sorry to have become once more autobiographical, but reflection on the extreme improbability of his own life by historical standards, seems to me a profitable exercise for everyone. It encourages a due agnosticism. For agnosticism is, in a sense, what I am preaching. I do not wish to reduce the skeptical element in your minds. I am only suggesting that it needs not be reserved exclusively for the New Testament and the creeds. Try doubting something else. Such skepticism might, I think, begin at the very beginning with the thought which underlies the whole demythology of our time. It was put long ago by Turrell. As man progresses, he revolts against, quote, earlier and inadequate expressions of the religious idea, taken literally and not symbolically. They do not meet his need. And as long as he demands to picture to himself distinctly the term and satisfaction of that need, he is doomed to doubt for his picturings will necessarily be drawn from the world of his present experience. 
In one way, of course, Tyrrell was saying nothing new. The negative theology of Pseudo-Dionysius had said as much, but it drew no such conclusions as Tyrrell. Perhaps this is because the older tradition found our conceptions inadequate to God, whereas Tyrrell finds it inadequate to the religious idea. He doesn't say whose idea, but I am afraid he means man's idea. We, being men, know what we think, and we find the doctrines of the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming inadequate to our thoughts. But supposing these things were the expressions of God's thoughts, it might still be true that, quote, taken literally and not symbolically, they are inadequate, from which the conclusion commonly drawn is that they must be taken symbolically, not literally, that is, wholly symbolically. All the details are equally symbolical and analogical. But surely there is a flaw here. The argument runs like this. All the details are derived from our present experience, but the reality transcends our experience. Therefore, all the details are wholly and equally symbolical. But suppose a dog were trying to form a conception of human life. All the details in its picture would be derived from canine experience. Therefore, all that the dog imagined could, at best, be only analogically true of human life. The conclusion is false. If the dog visualized our scientific researches in terms of ratting, this would be analogical. But if it thought that eating could be predicated of humans only in an analogical sense, the dog would be wrong. In fact, if a dog could, per impossible, be plunged for a day into human life, it would be hardly more surprised by hitherto unimagined differences than by hitherto unsuspected similarities. A reverent dog would be shocked. A modernist dog, distrusting the whole experience, would ask to be taken to the vet. But the dog can't get into human life. Consequently, though it can be sure that its best ideas of human life are full of analogy and symbol, it could never point to any one detail and say, this is entirely symbolic. You cannot know that everything in the representation of a thing is symbolical unless you have independent access to the thing and can compare it with the representation. Dr. Tyrrell can tell that the story of the Ascension is inadequate to his religious idea because he knows his own idea and can compare it with the story. But how, if we are asking about a transcendent objective reality to which the story is our sole access? We know not. Oh, we know not. But then we must take our ignorance seriously. Of course, if taken literally and not symbolically means taken in terms of mere physics, then this story is not even a religious story. Motion away from the earth, which is what ascension physically means, would not in itself be an event of spiritual significance. Therefore, you argue, the spiritual reality can have nothing but an analogical connection with the story of an ascent. For the union of God with God, and of man with God-man, can have nothing to do with space. Who told you this? What you really mean is that we can't see how it could possibly have anything to do with it. That is a quite different proposition. When I know as I am known, I shall be able to tell which parts of the story were purely symbolical, and which, if any, were not. Shall see how the transcendent reality either excludes and repels locality, or how unimaginably it assimilates and loads it with significance. 
had we not better wait? Such are the reactions of one bleating layman to modern theology. It is right you should hear them. You will not, perhaps, hear them very often again. Your parishioners will not often speak to you quite frankly. Once the layman was anxious to hide the fact that he believes so much less than the vicar. He now tends to hide the fact that he believes so much more. Missionary to the priests of one's own church is an embarrassing role. Though I have a horrid feeling that if such mission work is not soon undertaken, the future history of the Church of England is likely to be short. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.